taken in connection with the lesson from the Heidelberg Catechism, which reflects back on the Apostles' Creed. So we'll be reading together from Romans, the letter to the Romans, chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still circumcised. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, Faith is made void and the promise is made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up 
Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So far, the word of God. Reflecting on that discussion of, of faith and how it connects those who are circumcised, so that would be those descended from Israel, as well as those who are uncircumcised, which is to say those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the time of this writing, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, considering that discussion on how they are all children of God through Abraham by faith, let's now read our passage, Lord's Day 24. But why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of it? Because the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God, whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. But do our good works earn nothing, even though God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not earned It is a gift of grace. Does this teaching not make people careless and wicked? No. It's impossible that those crafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I don't know how many of you out there are fans of fiction. But if you are, you may have, in the time of reading, come into contact with the idea of a life debt. The basic idea is that one character saves the life of another. The other person is a member of some exotic culture, and in response to being rescued, he pledges loyalty and service for the rest of his life, as his culture dictates. Now, some have asked if there are some cultures in the real world that do this. There are some individual cases in which something similar has taken place. Many centuries ago, there was a man named Libran of the reed bed, and he said, I killed a fellow. After this, I was held in chains as a guilty man. But a relative of mine came to my rescue in the nick of time. He paid what was needed to get me off, though I was bound in chains. And he saved me, though guilty from death. After he had bought my release, I promised him with a binding oath that I should serve him all the days of my life. Now, while we know that there are no cultures in the world like this, in the real world, the feeling of indebtedness of various individuals That feeling of indebtedness and gratitude if someone saves your life is still there. And we know this. We can sympathize with this man who expressed his loyalty to the one who saved him. We feel something when one person tells another, I owe you my life. What does this feeling rest in? It rests in an eternal truth. It rests in the recognition that there is no real price that can be put on saving someone's life. What would one person pay another in order to be saved from death? A king unhorsed and in the thick of battle as his troops are withdrawing and fleeing all around him shouts, my kingdom for a horse. 
A wealthy man being threatened by someone with a knife in an alleyway in some downtown core says, here, take my watch, take my wallet, take my phone, just let me go. Anything, just let me go. A life is priceless. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 49, verse 7, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him for the redemption of their souls is costly. Who could put a number to a wealth of experiences? Who could put a dollar value to a lifetime of potential? A life really is priceless. And the only thing that can really compare one life with, with a life is another life. So when we come before God with the wages of sin hanging over our heads, we come before God knowing that we are guilty and the wages of sin is death. And then we see that in our place, Jesus Christ has stepped in and has given a life for a life. That God accepts the payment of the life of his own beloved son, who freely offered himself up in our place. How could we possibly repay that? Especially when it's our own fault that we got to the place that we're in. When he freely forgives and redeems us from the pit into which we plunged ourselves. What could we say? I proclaim to you the word of God under the following theme. We owe God everything. And this is, first of all, a reminder to take seriously. Second, we must receive this gift by faith. And third, the nature of this faith. Now as we turn to our passage, we can see how the Apostle Paul begins his letter to the church in Rome by explaining this very thing. If you were to look at the earlier chapters of the letter to the Romans, you would see how he began his letter to the Romans talking about how Gentiles, which is to say non-Jews, were under God's wrath for, for living unrighteously and for worshiping everything but God himself. Now, this was something that was significant because most of the Christians in the church of Rome were Jewish. So this was a concept that they would have been familiar with and they would likely be nodding their heads in agreement with all of this. The unrighteousness of the Gentiles, yes, this is something that they would agree with. But as the Apostle Paul works his way through the book of Romans, he shows that this unrighteousness extends to more than just the Gentiles. This unrighteousness extends to all. And you can especially see that coming to the foreground in Romans 3. And you can see the Jews, in your minds, you can kind of see the Jews taking a step back and saying, unrighteousness of all? Okay, maybe, but you wouldn't be including Jews necessarily in that, would you? Well, yes. As he works his way through, he points out that yes, Jews too. Jews are also counted under this. But what about Abraham? Would have been their question. What about Abraham? What shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found? 
according to the flesh. Or if you look in the footnote here, or Abraham, our, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. Abraham, who was our, our father according to the flesh, who we descended from according to the flesh. What about him? You're not putting him in the same boat as everybody else, right? Now, there, there's a reason that this would be so shocking to them, because for many Jews in that day, Abraham was seen as the quintessential Jew, which is to say the, the perfect Jew, there were many Jews who believed during that time that Abraham already fulfilled all of the commands of Moses perfectly without having to be told any of them. It came even before the time of Moses when God gave the law to Moses to share with all of the people of Israel. And so they would say, not Abraham, but yes, Abraham falls under this as well. Abraham, although he was the quintessential Jew, he falls under this as well. Righteousness was not by works even for Abraham. And that's what he comes to here in verse 2. Abraham, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. The second part of this, but not before God, is a recognition that he doesn't have something to boast about. This is an if-then proposition. If he did have some if he, he was justified, if he was declared righteous before God, because of everything that he had worked on, then yes, you would have a leg to stand on. But the thing is that this is not what Scripture teaches. The Apostle Paul steps back and says, what does the Scripture say? The Scripture takes away any leg you have to stand on with regards to this. Abraham believed God. It doesn't say Abraham worked if somebody worked, then what they received was a wage. What they received was something that they were owed. But Abraham didn't work. He wasn't owed this by God. Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Even Abraham was dependent on salvation by Christ through faith. This is a principle that we can see carried out in Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. It's the fulfillment of that principle as well. Later quoted in the New Testament in Galatians 3, verse 10, as this, we read, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law and do them. The thing is that nobody fulfills the law. Nobody is able to carry this out perfectly, not even Abraham. Nobody. This is a reminder to take seriously. For the Jews, they were being brought to the recognition that even the holiest person that they could possibly conceive of, even the holiest man, their forefather, according to the flesh, Abraham, even he could not say, that he was righteous according to works. And then he doesn't just stop with 
Abraham. He goes to David. And he reminds them of what David says. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So blessed is the person who the Lord doesn't count his, his sins against him. You sin, but instead of counting them against you, the Lord moves them elsewhere. Looking forward, of course, we know that the Lord moves them. He's placed them, counted them to Jesus Christ, and he has counted the righteousness of Christ to us. So the conclusion here is that I am not more righteous. Each of these Jews could say, I am not more righteous just for being a a part of God's people. I am not more righteous just for being a descendant of Abraham according to the flesh. This is something that's humbling, isn't it? It's a reminder to take seriously that we owe God everything. But, and this brings us to our second point, if it is faith alone, the Jews would respond. What benefit would my circumcision offer? This is that whole discussion on circumcision in verses 9 and following. That's their immediate protest. If it's faith alone, isn't it my circumcision that sets me apart from the rest of the nations? Isn't it the fact that I'm wearing a covenant symbol that sets me apart from everyone else? It would be kind of like one of you here today, watching today, saying, doesn't my baptism count for anything? Circumcision was the sign of God's promise given to Abraham that he would be his God and Abraham and his descendants would be God's people. Paul's answer is this. Yes, your circumcision does mean something. These first generations Jewish first generation Jewish Christians, their circumcision did mean something. It was a sign of a promise, but it was a sign of a promise that was given through faith. The only reason that Abraham was given the sign of circumcision was because he actually believed in God when God made him a promise. And so Abraham's circumcision became a sign of being in a right relationship with God for all who believe. But it only had power because it came out of God's promise. The Apostle Paul wanted to disabuse the Jews in the church of Rome of the idea that they were special on account of simply being given that sign. The thing is, they were special. But they weren't special because of the symbol that they carried on their body with them wherever they went. They were special because God had been gracious to them. And for us today, that's true too. We're not special because of the fact that we had water poured on our foreheads as infants. Or if you're not baptized yet and and you're looking forward to your baptism, you won't be made more special just because you had that baptismal water sprinkled on your forehead. Your specialness comes from what that sign points to. What that water points to, namely what God gives. For the Jews, the Apostle Paul was saying, you share in that promise 
of what God gives by faith. But the thing is that these Gentiles who are in church besides you, the Jews had been a little bit uncomfortable with these Gentiles and wondering if they were on the same footing. And he's saying these Jews who are in the church beside you, they have shared in that exact same promise given to them by faith because faith was the common thing that held them together. In a way, you could say that they're all children of Abraham, the Apostle Paul says, because they all have the same faith as Abraham. And this was a faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. Circumcision became a sign of it, a symbol of it, but this faith was something that he had before he was circumcised. And this was a promise that was given to him and to his children. Now, this idea of faith being tied into circumcision is actually very important for the Lord's days coming up when we discuss baptism as well. Because you'll notice that Abraham's righteousness was counted to him on the basis of faith, and yet God still commanded that his children bear that covenant sign. God still commanded that his children bear the sign of promise that Abraham himself received by faith. In the same way, this translates to the New Testament, to baptism, the sign of baptism still goes to the children, even though it's something that's received by faith. But we'll get to that when we get to those Lord's Days later. The main point here is the key, that it is God's gift. It's not based in the sign. It's not based in some ritual that you go through. That's not what has the power. What has the power is the fact that it is God's gift. And that's something that we confessed in our Lord's Day today as well. It's not done by works, but it's done because it is God's gift. This reward is not earned. It is a gift of God. And this comes, brings us to our third point. Looking back at chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, we are reminded again, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes in him, God, who justifies or declares the ungodly as righteous, his faith is accounted to him for righteousness. Again, the Apostle Paul wanted to make very clear to the Jewish Christians in the church of Rome that it was not circumcision and not works but the grace of God by which they stood as righteous before God's throne. But what does this look like? Well, in order for them, in order to help them understand, the Apostle Paul gives them this picture of Abraham and his son. Abraham, if you're familiar with the Bible, this will be something that's quite familiar to you, but Abraham, when he was a very, very old man, he was told by God that you will have descendants as many as the grains of sand on the seashore and as many descendants as as the stars in the sky. And Abraham's looking at himself and he's thinking, "I'm, I'm worn out. 
And he's looking at his wife, and he, he sees his, his wife is a, an elderly woman. She is also worn out much, far past the age of childbearing. Now what's going to happen? And yet, God in his grace gave him a son. This son was named Isaac. As this son grew older and older, he was reminded time and time again that God was the one who gave this to him. That it was the fulfillment of the promises of God. And though he struggled and though his wife Sarah laughed at the idea, Abraham still believed because he trusted in God. God had promised, and our passage here says, not being weak in faith, he didn't consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old, and he didn't consider the deadness of Sarah's womb to be a problem because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, God was also able to perform. This was the picture that was given. So that's the key. Trusting the nature of this faith is recognizing what God has promised, God is also able to perform, including forgiving you of all your sins, including forgiving you of everything you've done. Nothing that you work, nothing that you do, no, no penance that you offer, no, no matter how much you try to reform your life after you've been converted and you work and you work and you work, none of that can redeem everything that you've done in the past. But God promises to you that you don't have to work and work and work in order to redeem all of that, but that it's already been done. And then the key there is that what God has promised, you trust that he's able to perform it. But then you get a problem, don't you? At least that's what those who debated with the Apostle Paul said, you get a problem, don't you? Because if you don't have to do anything, if you can't do anything, and all you have to do is believe, this is going to make people careless. This is going to make people wicked. And that's what our Lord's Day today also talks about. It says, does this teaching not make people careless and wicked? Well, what's the response here? No. No, it doesn't. Because it's impossible that those grafted into Christ by true faith shouldn't bring forth fruits of thankfulness. So what's meant by this? No. If you really believe that you were in as broken a situation as you actually were, if you believe that it was necessary, that, that God, looking back at the Apostles' Creed, this is a reflection on the Apostles' Creed, right? So reflecting back on the Apostles' Creed, if you believe that God who was the creator of heaven and earth and who created everything perfect didn't wipe mankind out right after they rebel and they threw everything into disarray and turmoil and they, they, they did so much damage, 
But instead, the second part of the Apostles' Creed, he sent his son who came down to earth, who lived among us, who suffered, who died, who was buried, who was raised up again on the third day. If you truly believe that your sins were that bad that it required the Son of God himself to come down in order to atone for that sin, you will respond with David, verses 7 to 8, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute or count sins. You will stand in awe of what God has done. And you'll strive to kill what you've done. You'll strive to kill your old nature. You will hate your old nature. And you'll strive to return more and more to Jesus' image in the power of the Spirit who works through you, the third person of the Trinity. If you truly believe, you will not contentedly remain. You will not contentedly remain to continue in the walk of the careless or or of the wicked. If you are contentedly remaining there, then you do not truly believe. But rather, you'll turn around and you will hate your sin. And you'll pursue Christ. You'll remember the horror of your sin. You'll fix your eyes on your Savior's face at Calvary as he cries out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you will say, That was me that put him there, yet... He took my place, and so I will follow him to the ends of the earth. Understanding, gradually perhaps, but coming to understand the cost that was wrapped up in those words that we find at the very end. The cost that was wrapped up in those words in verses 24 and 25. That Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses And he was raised so that we could be declared righteous. Raised because of our justification. And so we believe in the Lord. Believe in him who raised up our Lord from the dead. Verse 24. You truly believe that you are in mortal danger. And that everything that Christ has paid for was the source and the cause of that mortal danger and you will hate it and you will flee from it, not returning to carelessness or wickedness. But if you do, and you can, even if you've been continuing in that up to today, remember this, you can turn to Christ in faith right here and right now, repenting and crying out to God for this forgiveness. But if you do, you can trust that for you too it will be counted as righteousness. Verse 22. Therefore it was accounted to him, that is to Abraham, as righteousness. The fact that he believed that what God has promised he was able to perform. It was accounted as righteousness. And this wasn't written for his sake alone. This wasn't just written for him, but it was written so that it, uh, it was written also for us. 
that it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. That this righteousness will be counted to us. This is counted to you too. Repenting from sin, fleeing from sin, and putting your trust that God who promised is also able to perform. For you too, it will be counted as righteousness. God has made you those promises. And for you who are baptized, you can remember this because you can see it in your own baptism. God is able to perform. Believe that, beloved. Believe that it is not just for Abraham, but also for us. This is the life debt that we owe to God. This is the fact that we owe him. We owe him everything. This is a reminder that we've got to take seriously. Even the holiest are in need of this reminder that we owe him everything and that we need to take this on faith. This is something we must receive by faith. And so, let us respond with faith, giving glory to God. Amen.